Well, if you would, open your, your Bibles, if you have them with you, to Colossians chapter 1. It, it should be on the screen behind me. Uh, so either way, <clears throat> um, we're in a series right now we've uh, called Gospel Witness, The Reason for Our Existence. And through the first five weeks, we've covered our missional priorities, our five missional priorities. We'll talk about those in a moment. Um, and, and today, though, we want to talk about how do we accomplish the mission, to know what they are, and the how to accomplish them are two very different things. And so we want to spend some time talking about that. And, and so, uh, but if you would, join with me in reading our text from Colossians 1, verses 9 through 12. Um, For this reason, Paul writes to the Colossians, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience." And giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of His holy people in the kingdom of light. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to Your Word, we know that Your Word is holy and that it is a spiritual Word given to us to speak to our hearts, to be transformative in our our very being, Lord. And so, Lord, we ask that You would do that work even as we exposit your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so what are our five missional priorities? Let's see if we can get them in order. Five missional priorities. The first one is? Gospel culture. Okay, second? Gospel formation. It's good. We're doing better than last week, just, you know. And Ashley, you're not allowed to answer, just for the record. Yeah, my mom's word. <laughs> she got them last week, you know, so... Third, gospel mercy, that's right. Fourth, gospel outreach. And finally, gospel unity. Now, if you have not been here for those, I just want to encourage everyone. You can go to our YouTube channel. You can get them uh, audio online, but uh, go over those. Hear those. Let them become part of your thinking about what our mission is as a church. And, um, because they're, they're, they're crucial uh, that we for us to understand and, and to get. Uh, okay, so now what's the first? Gospel culture. What's the third? And the fourth? The second? And the fifth? Okay, just checking because you know if you change the order up, it might mess with you a little. I'll see if you're there. <clears throat> what are the missional priorities of marriage? We, we say them in our vows, don't we? As long as we both shall live. There's a biggie, right? Love, honor, cherish. Or faithfulness or fidelity to each other. Exclusivity, you might say. Uh, and, and then there's a variety of ways that we say in tragedy and in triumph. You know, for sicker, poor, richer, or, or uh, sicker, or healthy or sick, or whatever. You know, the, you know the routine. Good thing I don't do weddings, huh? <laughs> And these 
missional priorities of marriage are committed to at virtually every wedding. But statistics reveal that knowing them and knowing how to fulfill them are two very different things. They set the direction, but they don't tell us what roads to take to get there. Right? If I, if I just said to you, you know, you said, how do you get to Atlanta? Well, go north. Okay. <laughs> you might get there. I'm not sure what the odds are. But that's different than saying you need to take 275, follow that through Tampa, merge onto 75, and just stay on that north. And that's a simple one, right? Let's change it up. How do I get to Pittsburgh? Or how do I get to Phoenix, Arizona? Or, you know, Seattle? If I just say go northwest, pretty unlikely that you're going to arrive in Seattle. Knowing what these missional priorities are is not at all knowing what it takes to fulfill them. It's important. It's, in fact, necessary that we know what they are. Um, But two things are true, and anyone who's married knows it when it comes to the missional priorities of marriage. Knowing what they are doesn't mean you understand fully what those priorities mean or how to live in such a way as to fulfill them. And we want to learn more deeply what they mean and how to live in such a way as to fulfill them. Um, I hope that our series has planted basic concepts of what we mean by each of the missional priorities, uh, but we're going to have to continually learn what we mean by them. Uh, Knowing them, yes, essential to living them, but it's a first step. We want to live in such a way that we will be oriented to fulfill them. The missional priorities themselves don't tell us how to fulfill them. Just like passing human anatomy does not make one a doctor, okay? You might understand what's there, you understand what's supposed to function, but knowing how to get it to function is a very different thing. Our text in Colossians, the good news is, does tell us how to fulfill them. And so we're going to focus on that under three headings, prayerful pursuit, purposeful living, and patient endurance. Prayerful pursuit, purposeful living, and patient endurance. So let's begin under that first heading, prayerful pursuit. Now I want to read verse 9 again. For this reason, Paul says, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. Continually, we, we continually ask God to, f- to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. We've laid out the missional priorities, but there's a temptation that faces us. The first would be that the pastors think that it is our job to tell the church everything we're supposed to do in order to accomplish it. That we can, in some sort of top-down fashion, orchestrate the carrying out of the mission and these missional priorities. The other temptation is that the congregation assumes that that is the role that the pastors should take. So you just wait for instructions. Neither of those are going to work well. Paul's prayer reveals that neither will get the job done. He shows another way. Paul didn't tell the Colossians what God's will for them was. He prayed that the Spirit would make known to them what God's will was for them. Now, to be sure, there are always fundamentals, basics, which Paul is more than happy to instruct them in. It's always God's will to show compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. It's always His will that we bear with each other when we have complaints against each other and that we forgive one another, uh, uh, even as we have been forgiven. It's always His will that we put on love and let peace be the guiding principle in all of our dealings. That is always God's will. 
These all speak to gospel culture. In some cultures, it's okay to be demanding, abrupt, combative, uncaring, aggressive. Some businesses have a culture like that, and that's okay by them. But that's not okay in the church of God. We have a different cultural expectation. Of course, when people come in to our community and they are demanding, abrupt, combative, uncaring, and so forth, it provides an opportunity for us to live out our culture in the face of that. But again, these don't tell us how to show mercy in our community or which outreach we should consider or not or which formative practices are best suited for our community to help us obey the commands of Jesus or how to achieve unity among the churches in the Tampa Bay area. They don't tell us how to do that. Now, they are to be applied and lived in while we do that, to be sure, but they don't give us the specifics of that. We must be filled with the knowledge or awareness of what God wants us to do by the Holy Spirit's wisdom and understanding. When you, when you read that you would be filled with the knowledge of His will, just say, think to yourself that we would be filled with knowing what God wants us to do. That's what that means. <laughs> with knowing what God wants us to do. Paul didn't offer the Colossians a seven-week course on how to know the will of God. He prayed that they would know the will of God. And if he had offered a seven-week course on uh, how to know the will of God, I would suggest that he might spend most of that time talking about the importance of prayer. Uh, They need to pray. Paul knows that what we should do must ultimately come from the Holy Spirit. And it will be given to us, not just the leaders, but to us, all of us. He didn't pray, well, I pray that your leaders would be filled with the knowledge of his will. No, I pray that you would be filled, the whole church. That we would know what God wants us to do. You see, we, in Paul's mind, and I think it ought to be in our minds, we're we're a living, dynamic community that serves a living, dynamic God. Who interacts with us and engages us about what's going on. In our community. So we must be a people of prayer. And prayers that are asking God to show us how to live. How to put into practice the commands of Jesus. To show us the right things to do. Prayer is essential in our formation into the image of Christ. On a number of levels that is true. It's essential in our formation into the image of Christ. And I'll just give you a couple of examples of that. One, Jesus found himself regularly in times of prayer. So if we're going to be in the image of Christ, we're going to have to be patterned after how he lived his life. There were, um, prayer was essential for his doing the will of the Father. And if Jesus didn't have a shortcut to God's will and what to do, he had to actually pray to know what it was. You think we're going to get some sort of shortcut? <laughs> no, we're going to need to pray and spend time before the Lord and ask him to give us wisdom and bring up the situations that are in our hearts and minds and ask God to help us understand what to do. In in Luke 5, 16, we read, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. And then before picking the 12, we read that Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. I think that's over in uh, chapter 6 of Luke, verse 12 and 13, I think. When the Jewish leaders were so mad at him that they wanted to kill him because he had healed on the Sabbath. He responded in John five nineteen. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son does also. 
Well, how did Jesus know what the Father was doing? Prayer. Spending time with him in prayer. Prayer is formative in another way as well, into the image of Christ. Jesus calls us to pray for those who persecute us. That's part of gospel culture that we are called to have, and it's part of the image of Christ who prayed for those who crucified him into which we are to be formed. So it's gospel formation. It's formative, the very act of praying. And it's necessary if we're going to engage gospel mercy or gospel outreach or gospel unity because, trust me, we'll be persecuted. It never goes quite like you had hoped. You know, we have this vision of how, oh, we're going to show mercy. People are going to just love it. No, not always. No, they'll accuse you of all sorts of things. Okay. (laughs) And, 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 And you pray for those who persecute you. Praying for our enemies is essential to loving our enemies. We'll never be formed into a people who love their enemies if we aren't a people who pray for their enemies. So we have to pray for our enemies. And, and, and that's hard. No. By the way, this is good in those fulfilling the missional priorities of marriage, too. Because sometimes the only thing you got to work on certain days, certain weeks, is pray for your enemies. <laughs> love your enemies. Okay, I can do that. <clears throat> yeah, you know what I mean. You've been married long enough. Yeah. Um, you have any doubt about it, just ask Donna, you know. <clears throat> Prayer is formative for us in so many ways. Prayer is essential to change our desires into God's will. Prayer is essential to change our desires into God's will. You see, I don't wake up in the morning desiring to always do God's will. I have to pray, Lord, May I do your will on earth as it is in heaven today, that your kingdom might be manifest where we are, and that your name would be hallowed and not blasphemed because of my life. That's how Jesus taught the disciples to pray. Your name must be hallowed. And it will be as your kingdom comes in our midst, as we do your will on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our bread for today. Which, by the way, that prayer is... Also, what's implied in that prayer is that we're praying for the Lord to help us distribute the bread we receive that's more than what we need for today to those who don't have what they need for today. That's a dangerous prayer, too. Oh, and then there's the one, forgive me my sins even as I forgive those who sin against me. That's really dangerous. But it it conforms our desires to God's desires. The Lord's Prayer teaches us to pray for a gospel culture, for formation into the image of Christ, that we should show gospel mercy with our daily bread. It turns us outward, and it's our Father, so it's teaching us unity as well. It's all right there in the Lord's Prayer, every one of those missional priorities, right there in the Lord's Prayer. The the church of the first three centuries of, of, of Christendom, or Christianity, better said, They understood the necessity of prayer for fulfilling their mission. And there's a particular way they understood it that I haven't mentioned yet. So I want to bring up this particular way which they understood it as well. And and this is from uh, uh, Alan Kreider. He's a church historian, but uh, I've referenced this resource a few times, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. And he writes the following. "The The Christian Association's meetings, we call that church, evidently had another appeal. The sense of the presence of God. Tertullian's writing captures the expectant, non-routine aura of the Christian meetings. 
The meetings were occasions in which members prayed, massing their forces, to quote Tertullian, to wrestle with God in prayer. As Tertullian comments in his treatise on prayer, the Christians did not distinguish between spiritual and economic social topics in their prayers. They prayed passionately for divine provision and protection as they encountered sickness. Listen to this list. These are the things they prayed for provision for and protection from. Sickness, temptation, poverty, and demonic possession. In their precarious daily lives, they sensed themselves able to survive only if God was real to them and answered their prayers. Christians were able to embody an alternative habitus, habits, lifestyle, because they were convinced that they experienced God's energizing reality. You see, if we're going to be a transformed people, we have to live in relationship with the transforming God. Amen? A living, vital relationship. Now, to be clear, the early church did not see healing or deliverance or other answers to prayer as evangelistic tools. It wasn't like, hey, we're going to do these things so we can really win the lost to come in. They didn't see it that way. They saw it as evidence that the church was a society where compassion ruled. And that got the attention of the society around them. Nor were they taught that Christians were exempt from suffering. That because God could heal, that okay, we don't have to be sick anymore. They didn't get taught that God would heal every time. They simply prayed because they believed that God was living and active among them. They also believed that the oppressor, Satan, was real and active. And they prayed for deliverance. They did a lot of praying for deliverance. It's an interesting list of things they prayed for, (laughs) for for deliverance. From oppression that might come in the form, uh, that deliverance might come in the form of healing. Or provision for real needs. Or deliverance from the addiction to greed. And we try that in our church today. Hey, we're going to have a prayer line for everyone that's addicted to greed. You think about that a moment. They saw things just a little differently than we do. And a preoccupation. They prayed for deliverance from a preoccupation with sex. Prayer was a vital part of their community. Wow, interesting how prayer impacted them, isn't it? Well, that leads to our our second heading, which is purposeful living. Purposeful living. Verse 10, if you would read with me again from our text in Colossians 1. So that, this is why he prayed for them. So he prayed that they would know God's will. So that they would live a life worthy of the Lord. Ah, so knowing God's will isn't sufficient. Knowing what God wants us to do isn't sufficient. We have to actually then intend to live that way. Go live it, right? That you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. If one has a missional priority, whatever it might be, one does have to get up and walk. They have to go. You know, God started this whole thing with telling Abram that he'd be a blessing to all nations on earth will be blessed for you. But what he, what's the next thing Abram did? He got up and went. We have to get up and go. And when he says that you may live a life worthy of the Lord, the, the, the 
literal Greek, it's a metaphor for living, but it's that you may walk worthy of the Lord. In the Jewish mind, walking was how you lived. That was your way of life. And so we are to walk in the way of the Lord. And, and so we are to live our life or walk in God's will. This purposeful living is what he's talking about. That we would intend to do the very thing that God wants us to do. That they would live in line with God's purposes, which I'm calling purposeful living. Some in our day uh, frame the gospel this way. God loves you and has a plan for your life. The statement is true as far as it goes, but it can be a bit misleading. God does have a plan for us, to be sure, and that is to lay down our lives for the king, His kingdom purposes, to use our lives for the purpose of being faithful gospel witnesses, to testify, to put it in uh, somebody else's words that I always like, but to testify to the inbreaking reign of God in all we do. To testify that our lives would point to, testify to the inbreaking reign of God. That Christ's kingdom has actually begun. <laughs> and look, among us, There's evidence of it when we forgive one another, when we love one another, when we bear with one another, when we have compassion and mercy on others. Amen? See, God loves you and has a plan for your life can be interpreted as an individualistic thing. But this is a calling in which we walk together. We walk together. If we're going to walk in God's will, we must first purpose or intend to do so we aren't going to accidentally do the will of god on the sea if you put a boat on the sea uh, drifting is easy sailing is not drifting requires that you do nothing sailing requires discipline and effort purposeful living is sailing it's not drifting to fulfill our mission is to sail missional drift it is easy. All you have to do is nothing. I mean, missional drift will come on us like nobody's business if we do nothing. We have to constantly ask ourselves, are we walking out the mission? Not only, oh, wow, we've learned a whole lot about what God's will is for us to do. Okay, great, get up and walk. Are we actually doing it? Are we putting it into action? We have to purposefully live our lives in the will of God. Oh, wow, I love that we as a church have gospel mercy as a priority. Well, I do too, to be honest with you. But if we aren't actually showing mercy, what good is that? William Law in A Serious Call to a Holy and Devout Life wrote the following. He said, the reason people don't change behavior is that they never really intend to do so. (laughs) We we can get together and talk about things we ought to be doing and should be doing and ideally would be doing. But we have to actually intend to actually do any of them. (laughs) To start. We'll never do it perfectly. I get that and we'll fail here and fail there. But you know what? If we all start, we can see each other and learn from each other and begin to grow together in that doing. Amen? If we are going to be a church formed into the image of Christ, sorry, my 
sermon notes just went right back to the first page, so I just have to <laughs> pull it down. Um, if we're going to be a church formed into the image of Christ, a church effective in its missional witness, we must take seriously the call to obey the commands of Jesus and intentionally adjust how we live to get there. We're being told to obey His commands. In Matthew 20, it's a great commission. Teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. So then we have to adjust our lives in order that we would fulfill them. What, what is involved in purposeful living? It's, it's interesting. Luke Timothy Johnson, I was, as I was preparing this message on Friday, I thought of a quote by him about prayer, and I went looking for it. I never did find it, but I did find this. <laughs> I got lost in this one. <clears throat> because what struck me is they're the same three points of my sermon, but he was making them out of Luke's gospel. I'm making them from Colossians. But uh, he, he said this, and this is from his book, Prophetic Jesus, Prophetic Church. He's talking about Jesus' discipleship in the book of Luke and and Acts, particularly Luke. Uh, He says, to the crowds, Jesus issues summons to discipleship. And once they join with the prophet, he teaches them explicitly the demands of discipleship. In terms of, now, now listen to the three aspects of discipleship that Jesus taught, according to Luke Timothy Johnson. Prayer. The use of possessions in power and perseverance. Now, you can just change that up a little and you've got prayer, purpose, and patience. He calls it perseverance well enough, patient endurance. It's just that middle one. He, he calls it the use of possessions and power. But if you change how you use your money and your strength, your power, your everything that you have the ability to influence, you will have changed how you're living in a very purposeful way in following Jesus. <clears throat> Where our money is, our heart is. So if I want to get to our, if we want to get to our hearts, and, and we want to get our hearts in line with the purposes of God, we're going to have to start sacrificially giving our money to kingdom work, which includes mercy to the needy. There is no way to affect my heart toward God without adjusting my finances toward God. It's impossible. Because where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And having compassion on the needy is a vital place for that to take place. Purposeful living is different than productive living. Purposeful living is different than productive living. Our culture is all about productivity. We love productivity. We've been given so many tools to make us more productive, they don't have any time left. If you're to buy a book on living with purpose, it's likely that the goal of the book would teach you how to be more productive. There's a danger in focusing on productivity instead of flourishing. In, In farming... If, if you merely focus on productivity, you can produce an abundance of crops. For a short period of time, they'll have nutritional value too. <laughs> but unless you think about what makes for healthy, flourishing soil, you'll soon be producing nutritionally empty produce. When the church focuses on productivity and not long-term health, it begins to gradually put out spiritually empty produce. Uh, You can say amen or oh me. (laughs) 
The handbook for purposeful living is the New Testament, to be sure, especially the Sermon on the Mount and the letters in the New Testament, especially so. Um, The Sermon on the Mount is Christ's manifesto for transforming the world. But these aren't read and apply type resources. They are read, let them soak in, let them begin to change how you view things. And pray and ask the Spirit to show you how to put them into practice in order to love other people. When I say that it's a manifesto for transforming the world, I mean, think about it. The Sermon on the Mount speaks to anger and calling other people idiots while you're driving down the road. I think I've concluded it's probably okay to say that, you know, they just need to take a driving course. They just need to take a driving course. I I don't know if that's okay or not, but it's a better substitute, you know. (laughs) They clearly don't know how to drive. That's a weakness inherent to their life. Um, um, It speaks to lost and marital uh, relationships, to unreconciled relationships, to uh, being people of our word, to letting go of a world of vengeance and embracing an ethic that goes well beyond the, the, the call of duty to loving our enemies, to motivations for spiritual life, uh, to greed versus generosity, to anxieties that such a generous life might tempt us to, to the judgments we tend to make uh, upon those that we are supposed to be generous to instead. It speaks to all of these things. And when we read them, we, we think to ourselves quite often, if you're anything like me, that'd be a crazy way to live! Absolutely. If the kingdoms of this world, the kingdoms of power and wealth and fame and profitability and being the best you that you can possibly be are what reign, then yes, this is absolutely crazy to live that way. But if Jesus reigns at the right hand of God and has charged us with living in that reign now, then it is the only sane way to live. Because one day he'll come back and ask what we've produced with this currency which he's given us. No, he's not talking about making more money with your earthly currency, but transforming the world by living in his upside-down economy. That is purposeful living. A life pleasing to the Lord and pleasing him in every way. That is purposeful living. Which leads to our third point. Patient endurance. Aren't you glad you've had to wait this long to get to the point about patience? Okay, sorry. Uh, Verses 11 and 12. Paul continues that prayer, being strengthened, so that you'd live this way, being strengthened with all power, according to your glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. Patient endurance. And giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of His holy people in the kingdom of light. Wendell Berry tells the story about an old bucket. By the way, if you don't read Wendell Berry, you should probably start reading Wendell Berry. And let me give you a good start. A few Mondays ago, I was, I was reading uh, a, a, an essay by him on why I will never own or buy a computer. Okay? And that was one of the most intellectually stimulating and humorous 
essays I've ever read. Well, it's just, just the essay. You've got to read the essay, but then you've got to read the letters to the editor that came in response to it, criticizing him for his reasons for not having a computer. But then don't stop there, because the best of the best is his response to the letters to the editor. Because when you're reading the, the letters, you're thinking, yeah, they got them there, and they got it. And then he just completely undoes them. <laughs> and he ends up giving the best definition of what marriage has become in our modern society, all in an article about why I'll never buy a computer. So... Wendell Berry should be read. You can find that in his, somewhere in his book, uh, The World Ending Fire. But anyway, um, good stuff. But Wendell Berry tells a story about an old bucket. And in a way, he's telling us a story about how the kingdom of God works, I think. For, he, he writes, For many years my walks have taken me down an old fence row in a wooded hollow on what was once my grandfather's farm. A, a battered, galvanized bucket is hanging on a fence post near the head of the hollow, and I never go by it without stopping to look inside. For what is going on in that bucket is the most momentous thing I know, the greatest miracle that I have ever heard of. It is making earth. The old bucket has hung there through many autumns, and the leaves have fallen around it, and some have fallen into it. Rain and snow have fallen into it, and the fallen leaves have held the moisture, and so have rotted. Nuts have fallen into it, or been carried into it by squirrels. Mice and squirrels have eaten the meat of the nuts and left the shells. They and other animals have left their droppings. Insects have flown into the bucket and died and decayed. Birds have scratched in it and left their droppings, or perhaps a feather or two. The slow work of growth and death Gravity and decay, which is the chief work of the world, has by now produced, in the bottom of the bucket, several inches of black humus. Soil. The rich stuff. I look into that bucket with fascination because I am a farmer of sorts and an artist of sorts, and I recognize there an artistry and a farming far superior to mine or to that of any human. I have seen the same process at work on the tops of boulders in a forest, and it has been at work immemorially over, the, uh, over most of the land surface of the world. All creatures die into it, and they live by it. That is how the kingdom of God works. This slow work of growth and death, gravity and decay, which is the chief work of the world, has by now produced in the bottom of the bucket several inches of black humus. That soil that is essential to the fertility of the earth. That, and, and, and the spiritual humus created by a body of believers living their lives in obedience to Christ over a lifetime is essential to the fertility, the flourishing of the kingdom of God on earth. The early church understood this. They understood this. They understood that success in the advance of the kingdom was going to take patient endurance over a lifetime. We live in a world that values instant and easy over healthy and worthwhile. If we are hungry, we don't ask what will help my body flourish. We drive through, go through a drive-through restaurant and order a burger or fried chicken or, God forbid, Taco Bell. 
I'm not sure how taco got in the name, but anyway. <clears throat> and, and the idea of cooking at home is beginning to mean picking up prepared meals and heating them in the microwave. Patient endurance is a hard sell in a world like this. I get that. Like you might be thinking, what, what, what are you talking about? Patient endurance. We don't want that. <laughs> but we need that. We need that. Patience was valued no more in the Greco-Roman world than it is in our own. However, interestingly enough, patience was the first virtue about which the church fathers wrote a treatise on patience. And they wrote at least three that we have remaining on patience in the first 250 years of church history. Three. They thought it was important enough to repeat two more times and expand on the thought of patience. That's about the age of our nation. So during that time, that's where the focus was. And they dramatically grew during that time while writing no treatises on evangelism, but three on patience. Alan Kreider again writes, The Christians believe that God is patient and that Jesus visibly embodied patience. And they concluded that they, trusting in God, should be patient, not controlling events, not anxious or in a hurry, and never using force to achieve their ends. To God, we know that a day is is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day, right? Right? Unfortunately, we think that's some sort of decoder cipher for figuring out when Jesus is coming back. No, it explains his patience. He's willing to wait. A thousand years, that's just a day. I give him a few more days. (laughs) Maybe a few more after that. He's patient. Have you ever noticed the famed love chapter of 1 Corinthians? The most popular verse for use at a wedding, of course. The first description of, lo- of what love is. Love is and kind. Love is patient and kind. You cannot love without being patient. It's impossible. And you won't be kind if you aren't patient either, to be sure. Hence, those are, are coupled together. If we're going to be the sweet savor of Christ in the world, they cannot sense an agenda in our love. If our kindness comes with an agenda, it will have a strange odor to it, and they will pick it out. You see, what we're talking about in our missional priorities is not a technique. These aren't techniques for growing a church. They are descriptions of how we are to live our lives before our King. If we grow or shrink, that is up to God in the process. That is up to Him. We want to do things as well as we can. We don't want people... Not loving Jesus because of dumb things we do, to be sure. But at the end of the day, our role is to live right before our God. In in community group this week, as we discussed the point about finding even one thing that we could agree on with other churches, like remember the Reagan-Gorbachev illustration? Okay, so that came up, and we're discussing that. Ashley uh, Corb points out, sorry, but I'm going to, yeah, I got you. But she points out, she says, you know, even if we land at that one thing we can agree on, that one little bitty-bitty thing, even if it's fictitious like the Reagan-Gorbachev one, even if we can land there, we still are a long ways before we're going to get to unity. And so we're going to have to have patience. I thought, yeah, 
Exactly. <laughs> Amen. That's right. Christians should be patient because God is patient. He's playing the long game, and so are we. Now, in closing, I just want to go back to Wendell Berry briefly. Right as he established himself in the prestigious university world, he decided to, to leave all that, go buy a small, mostly ruined farm. Decades later, he writes this about his farm and his life there. He says, as we have continued to live on and from our place, we have slowly begun its restoration and healing. Most of the scars have now been mended and grassed over. Most of the washes stopped. Most of the buildings made sound. Many loads of rocks have been hauled out of the fields and used to pave entrances or fill hollows. We have done perhaps half of the necessary fencing. A great deal of work is still left to do, and some of it, the rebuilding of fertility in the depleted hillsides, will take longer than we shall live. But in doing these things, we have begun a restoration and a healing in ourselves. I should say plainly that this has not been a pain proposition. As a reclamation project, it has been costly both in money and in effort. It seems at least possible that if any other place... In, in any other place, I might have had little interest in doing any such thing. The reason I have been interested in doing it here, I think, is that I have felt implicated in its history, the uses and the attitudes that have depleted such places as ours and made them marginal. God's work of restoration and healing, of making all things new, which is Christ's mission in the world, is not a pain proposition for the church. We aren't in this for the pain. At least not this side of eternity. It cannot be, though many have tried, turned into some, to some kind of commodity to be bought and sold. That, in the end, only leaves the world worse off than when they began. But as with any reclamation project, and that's really what the mission of the church is, because Christ is making all things new, it will be costly in both money and effort. But here's the good news, as Barry puts it. In doing these things, we begin a restoration and healing in ourselves. Listen, we are going to have to be praying to know God's will. We're going to have to be living purposefully. We're going to have to be patient because it's a long game. But in the process, we begin a healing and a restoration in ourselves. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, is we come to this communion table. We learn most from our Lord Jesus Christ that He played the long game. He gave His body to be broken and distributed. He poured out His blood. Father, let us see here the long game of Christ, the long game of God who gave His Son to be given up for us all. And let us live into that reality knowing that we too will be broken and distributed and poured out for others. But that in the very process of doing so, a healing and a restoration will have begun in us. And we partake of that healing and restoration symbolized in this meal as we partake of Christ through faith in the gospel, as we partake of His life for us, the forgiveness of our sins, and His blood shed on our behalf. In Jesus' name.